Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, caught in a landslide, no escape for reality. Reality winner, the Air Force vet who leaked documents showing Russian interference in the 2016 elections, is the subject of a new play in Chelsea. Because actually 11 men showed up unannounced to her home on June 3rd, 2017, and two of them doing the questioning, but 11 men were in her house that day. And then, before she was arrested in 2017, reality winner called Donald Trump a soulless ginger orangutan, which sent us down a philosophical path. No, I don't think it's fair to orangutans. I think it makes them seem caricatures of themselves. In 2017, the excellently named reality winner, who was working as a military contractor, printed out a classified NSA document about Russian election interference, folded it in half, stuffed it in her pantyhose, and anonymously mailed the document to a news outlet. All this earned her a visit from the FBI, who questioned her at her home in Georgia. The 80-page transcript of that interrogation, which also records the overriding concern of all present about the welfare, weight, and misandry of her pets, forms the script of a new play currently up at the kitchen in Chelsea. The play, called Is This a Room?, is an off-kilter thriller that could have been adapted from a John le Carré novel, except, of course, it's all reality. To tell us more, we're joined by Tina Satter, writer, director, and artistic director of Half Straddle Theatre Company. Welcome to the show. We're also joined by actor Emily Davis, who plays reality. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks. And we have Becca Blackwell, who plays one of the FBI agents. So, Tina, let's start with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came across this transcript and why you thought it would make a good play? Yeah, she was originally arrested in June 2017, and I had very vaguely heard her name, which is very memorable, but hadn't really paid attention at all. And then in December 2017, came upon an article in New York Magazine that was a really in-depth feature, and I just randomly came upon it, and immediately I was fascinated by this young woman, like just reading way more about her and her family and her background. And then in that article, when it mentioned the pantyhose part, there was a link it said, read the full transcript of the day the FBI arrived, and I had never read anything like that. So I clicked that link and then immediately was reading this document was fascinating, and it felt and sounded like a play to me. And that was how I first started worrying of what this could be. Yeah. And, and what did the transcript look like? Was it sort of outlined like a play? It, it was indirectly. I mean, it said verbatim transcription at the top, which was just, that was not the title, but to me it read like the title because it was in all caps, but it was literally telling whoever would get their hands on that officially, this is verbatim. And then where it would say, like, characters in a play, it said participants, and it listed reality winner. Um, they spelled her middle name wrong, which is Lee. The names of two of the agents were there, Agent Garrick and Agent Taylor. And then in the fourth participant listed was listed as unknown male. And so that also was, I was like, whoa, what is mm -hmm. that? Which we've, you know, come to pretty much glean was, because actually 11 men showed up unannounced to her home on June 3rd, 2017, and two of them doing the questioning, but 11 men were in her house that day. Um, so we realized that that unknown male is probably capturing the voices of the other nine men right. who were in the house. It's sort of a pastiche of all of the uh, yeah. voices and it, coming in On a in read, it was this, these amazing non sequiturs. So I was like, who is unknown male? They're such an <laughs> intriguing <laughs> figure. But once you realize it's the non sequiturs, but it's also really 
crazy interesting text to play with coming in and out of these more clear scenes. So, yeah. and, and Becca, you play unknown male, uh, the part that you were born to play. Um, can you tell me about when Tina first approached you uh, with the text and, and your initial thoughts? Oh God, it was December. It was that yep, right, right away? After you, yeah. Yeah, we met. Uh, at uh, Brian Mendez's uh, workspace. Right. I think it was Emily, me, Elon, you, and Brian, and we just read it. And I think I originally was reading Garrick. Yes. We were, I mean, because I, Emily looks so much like yeah. reality and is an incredible actor. That first read through, I was, I sent it to Emily, and that, like, literally after finishing, it was a take a look at this. I think there could be some play in this and you could play her. So then we immediately started reading with anyone that we felt had like some male energy to read these other three people listed in the transcript to start to figure out, is this a thing? Is this a play? And I want to come back to the masculine energy yeah. of these agents in a moment. But right. Emily, to you, Tina approached you and was like, not only do you kind of look like reality, but you're both from South Texas. What did you think when you first read the transcript? And was it difficult for you to embody that character? When we started reading the script out loud with each other, I think in our apartment, yeah. roomies. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I could hear the rhythmically as soon as we stood up and had it on our feet, and just sort of with the slightest directions from Tina, um, really just reading through for information. Even at that level, sort of totally stripped bare and neutral, I could still feel the powerful. I mean, the fascinating and, and compelling things that both reality was saying and the sort of scape that was being created by the unknown male and these two extremely charming um, FBI agents <laughs> that are also there. The way, I think, because of where I'm from and because of the sort of speak I'm used to in my head, I very quickly had ideas about how I thought this person spoke and related to people in the room. And so... I, f I felt that connection pretty immediately. You imbue her with tremendous humanity, and it's um, it's a very raw performance. And to me, her fear comes across so tangibly, even at the first moment when the FBI agents show up. And you know, this is not um, this is a written transcript. There's right. no like audio recording. So I'm wondering about like some of the vocal choices that were made, both by you, Emily, and you, Becca, and the other performers, and and how you decided to to take it in those specific directions. I mean, the, the, in the transcript, it's really, really written of, uh, 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 or like any sort of uh, skip over their thing is very specific. Mm. So everything that we're it doing captures all that stuttering yeah. is literally on the page. Yes, like especially with Agent Garrick, like it's uh, where, where, where do you do CrossFit at? Like right. the page reflects that. And he also has a sinus infection. He mentions yes. at the end, yes. so there's lots of like throat and clearing. All, every throat clearing or sneeze he's doing is in the transcript. Yes. It will it will say cough. It will say sneeze. So it's not to like oh let's show them he has a sinus infection. We're really treating everything the script the transcript was telling. He us. also pronounces the word clearance. As in a bit of an unusual way, and I was wondering if that also was in the transcript, or he's from Wyoming. That's um, just a Wyoming thing. Yeah, I, I got it. And so some of this, I mean, I guess back to your kind of original question with choices on, like for Becca and Emily, mm. around some of it. Then we are making it a play in the room. We can't make and weren't interested in making a recreation of the exact day. That's just we weren't. We didn't have a literal set, and it's not like we wanted to trick people into or whatever. It's live theater, but so it's an impressionistic thing in a, a way. I mean, directorially, I'm interested in, like, rhythm and how do you show fear and also show a, 
you know, the other aspects of reality that are on display, her sense of humor that still comes out at mm -hmm. times, mm -hmm. even after these FBI agents show up at her house. So it, it, I mean, and these two could each speak a little more to that, but like it becomes just filling out the world of the play to sit in the room in front of a live audience is also about the vocal choices that do keep it having integrity to who e each of these characters are, but that also just give the texture to hear it for 60 minutes. And, and speaking of those points of humor, Emily, was it challenging for you to sort of bounce back and forth or to, to bring up moments of gallows humor, <laughs> even when she knows that she could be going to jail? Like I was just mentioning to the crew that there's a moment at the end where the FBI agents say, we're gonna go to your office. Is there anything that we need to be concerned about? Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can talk about that laugh line that brings down the house. Um, <laughs> um, they ask her if there's anything at her desk that they should be concerned about finding, and she tells them that there's a grapefruit there and also a photo of Anderson Cooper that is signed, and she says he's quite good looking, so that is something that you must contend with, and it sort of makes the FBI agents a little uncomfortable, or we've dreamed that it does, <laughs> you know. And I think that reality, I mean, she's her humor jumps off the page is one of the clearest I mean it, it's what she resorts to in a way and I feel like I feel like people laugh when they're uncomfortable I mean these are like very obvious things to me I think I think that if she's run out of every single tactic which is what we're watching for an hour is her sort of maneuvering this maze of really high pressure like interrogation I would think that, the, that I think some of the humor is probably just more automatic, or at least that's how I would play it, because she has her wits about her, and I think she's probably suppressing a great deal of who she actually is for a large part of this. Mm -hmm. So peeling back the layers of what side of her she's presenting to these men is what I tried to think of when working with Tina and navigating the different like emotional junctures for her mm -hmm. in it. What part of reality is she willing to let these people see at any second of that? Hour. And Becca, you get uh, a great line, which is actually the title of the play. It's true. Can you talk a little bit about that moment, which is among the most surreal moments of the play for me? Oh, when he comes in and says, "Is this is this a room?" Yeah, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I there's a part of me that plays like almost nine different people in this way. Some of them are like intrigued by her. Some of them want to be really intimidating, and I, I don't know how many people could really keep that composure, I mean, I, and it's something I think is men have no idea what it's like. Men know what it's like to feel intimidated by men. They don't like it any more than women do, but they have a little more physical composure to kind of, and to, I am just so impressed with her navigating that. But that guy, he's just in the middle of her getting really pushed into a corner. Um, but they're also in a small room. So I think that yeah. the realistic thing is, is I think there's the three of them in there, plus maybe a couple other men. Sure, yeah. And then another guy comes in like, is this is this a room? I think it's the realistic thing that's happening. Right. The way we're doing it is those Garrick and Taylor literally have her like questioned in this way that's like, it's really a pivotal point because it's just really that they're like, hey, this is a platform for you to talk about why you... Why are you fucked up? You know, I think, and... Uh, I want to come back to the idea answer. of this masculine energy because the FBI agents at the beginning do say, this is voluntary. We're oh, here yeah. voluntarily. You can talk to us voluntarily. Right. But they never read reality, her Miranda rights. And so when she went to trial, her defense team tried to get this transcript thrown out because right. 
she wasn't read her rights. Yeah. And the government said, but if you read the transcript, they're all so friendly. So she right. couldn't have been coerced into doing anything that she didn't want to. Right. And I think that you do a really lovely job, Tina, of showing some mm. of these dynamics right. of this 25-year-old woman yeah. and 11 uh, yeah. men. All men. There's not one woman there, even if they did strip search her, they wouldn't have a female present to actually be, which is illegal. I mean, this, again, is like we are all these very, very strong, physically intimidating masculine and some men bodies literally cornering a woman in various ways to, to get her to say the things. A, a nervous woman, a fearful woman in yellow Pikachu converse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, there is a very funny. I mean, I think I think these guys kind of come in like we're heroes. We're going to find this, you know, and then, you, you know, the. Again, reality doesn't fit this narrative of any of these things that you want her to fit. And I right. think it was also, it's a crapshoot in terms of, like, they go to these probably things a lot. You know, who's to say? Their like, job. Is their job, you know, to go and get a, a, a leak or a thing, an idea on something going in? It could just be some guy that was, like, in his mom's basement right. being like, I don't like so-and-so, <laughs> and I said I was going to do this. Well, you know? and they keep on saying, we don't think that you're a spy master. Right, right, we right. can tell that you're not a spy master. Right. But meanwhile, um, Reality Winner was convicted to five years under the Espionage yes. Act, which is the longest sentence yes. that Yeah, she got more than Chelsea out. Manning for one piece of paper. Right. And, and I know that, Emily, you've been in touch with Reality. You've been writing. And Tina, you're also in touch with Reality's mom. I'm yes. wondering... Um, have they seen the play? What do they? Well, obviously, reality hasn't. Has reality's mom <laughs> right. seen the play? What does reality think about the fact that you guys are undertaking this project? We met reality's family this past weekend. They came to the show on Friday. Mm -hmm. Billy Winter Davis, who's her mother, who had been, has been in touch with us since pretty much since we started rehearsing yeah. this, had been planning for a long time to come to New York and see the show. She had told told us before that she wasn't sure she would be able to sit through it. I'm happy to say that she did sit through the show in the front row, no less. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no shit. I'm no kidding. Um, but she was very, very moved by the show and I think feels really excited that this many people, that the production is getting the kind of attention that it is getting because anything to highlight this story and to bring more attention to reality. I mean, if this is the way that this is going to happen, then this is the way that it, it's going to happen. So it was quite intimidating, but also really, I think, important to both to both of yeah. us, to all of us, yeah. that, um, to have that point of contact. And, and and she's crazy complex too, right? Like we were talking totally. a little bit yeah. about how maybe she hasn't received a lot of attention because neither side can quite mold right. her into mm -hmm. who they right. want her to be. You know, she's an Air Force vet who has three pink guns in her house, but she also leaked this document. She's a yoga instructor. You know, she's, she's right. a, a well-rounded, right. complex character. And a lot of that comes through in the text, too, right, where they're talking about mundane things in mm -hmm. addition to leaking this document like CrossFit right, and, totally. and her pets. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, I'm curious if, if you guys have any closing comments about what you hope the audience will take away from the show. I mean, one thing I just want to add on to the thing with Reality's family and her mom, who clearly I think their their main thing is like their daughter and like, but their Billy, her mom, and the, and the kind of cohort around that is also like they're so smart and they're equally want attention just paid to the questions and concerns that are raised by Reality's case, and that's what's sort of been incredible about interacting with them. I mean, they want their daughter home and they want her safe and if and tr always treated well, but they also want attention paid to just the kind of things it raised, and I think that's kind of remarkable to have that 
that they that Billy especially cares as much about our country as I think reality does in these complicated ways, especially in 2018. So. And Becca, what do you hope the audience walks out with? I hope the audience walks out with an idea that when you hear things on the news and, and there's things are a lot more complex and, and blanket statements about people. And I think in our identity politics panic, everyone paints people with one broad stroke on both sides. And it, it literally is a way of alienating when in reality, you know, reality we can actually probably in line, aligned more than we realize, and that's what I hope. And and also just to not to throw off someone if they did something outside of what you think is right or wrong, mm -hmm. and that things are a lot more complicated. And what she was doing was really out of a, sh a sheer love for the country and a and a hope to try and make it a better place for everyone. I don't think any of us really had the guts to do what she did. And as a young person, she's doing the thing that we all want people to do, and that's something you know. She followed through with it. She was a real patriot. And Emily, I'll give you the closing thought then. What do you hope people learn about reality? I think that to watch this show as a little microcosm of a real evolution of someone from a young idealist to becoming an adult and the ramifications of, of serving our country the way that she did as a vet, the drone mission that she worked, how that can leave a person, the tremendous effects that is having on our young veterans. To, I think just to, to care about her and to, to get people curious about her, because I promise the more you read about her, the more you'll want to know about her. I mean, she's, she's, pretty, she's a pretty remarkable person. That really comes through in the show. So thank you guys so much for bringing her to life. Tina, Emily, Becca, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having thank us. You. Absolutely, thank, thank you. you. Before she leaked the document that eventually put her in prison, reality winner was not shy about airing her opinions about Donald Trump on social media, calling him at various points an orange fascist, the tangerine-in-chief, and a soulless ginger orangutan. It's not the first time the president has been compared to that particular primate. Six years ago, when the prospect of a Trump presidency was still the stuff of comedy, Bill Maher famously quipped that Trump was the love child of a human woman and an orangutan. Some say these comments are disparaging to Trump, but given the undeniable intelligence of great apes, we wondered, is it more insulting to an orangutan to be compared to Donald Trump? Regardless, it made us want to know more. So today we bring you the foremost expert on these incredible animals, Dr. Birute Mary Galdikas, founder of Orangutan Foundation International, who joins us by phone. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Dr. Galdikas. No problem. So you've been involved in orangutan conservation for a long time. Can you tell us how you became interested in these amazing animals? I feel very strongly, actually, that I was born to study orangutans, and I became fascinated by them when I was a teenager and I was an adolescent. I looked at photographs of them, hadn't seen them in a zoo yet, and there was something about their eyes. Their eyes were eerily human-like, and I think part of it is because the iris, which is the dark, dark part of the eye, is surrounded by white, just like it is in humans. And orangutans are often 
compared to humans. They're quite similar from a genetic standpoint. Can you tell me about the derivation of the name, which is actually a portmanteau, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, orangutan is a Malay or an Indonesian word, and orang is person, and hutan is forest. So in their native Malaysia and Indonesia, Orangutans are known as orangutan, or people of the forest. And can you tell me a little bit about the intelligence of orangutans? How smart are they? Orangutans are uncannily smart. Um, (laughs) They probably have the intelligence of a three, maybe even a four-year-old child. The problem is that they don't speak. They don't have spoken language. But... Uh, one of my former students uh, taught an orangutan sign language, and the orangutan was able to put together words to form simple sentences in sign language, in what is called Amazon, uh, the American Sign Language of the Deaf. And what are some of the greatest threats to orangutans today? Well, the greatest threat is uh, deforestation. Their native forests are being chopped down, annihilated, in order to take, establish palm oil plantations and timber estates for pulp and paper. And also, like everything and everybody on this planet, uh, orangutans face a challenge from global climate change. Some scientists put together a study that indicated even if not a single tree is chopped down, uh, orangutans are going to lose about a third of their population simply through climate change if climate change is not stopped. And they will have to retreat up into the uplands and up into the mountains because the swamp forests in which they live will become either too hot, too humid, or will be swamped by uh, seawater. Do we know how many roughly exist in the wild today? And if those numbers dwindle, what is at stake? What are we losing if we don't have orangutans in the wild anymore? Well, both the Bornean and the Sumatran species are uh, recognized as being critically endangered. And critically endangered means that you have one more step left before you go extinct. It's the last step before extinction. So... Sumatran orangutans, there may be 15,000 left. Uh, Bornean orangutans, there may be 40,000 or 45,000 left. But the problem is that they're dispersed. So individual populations are at the most, you know, five or 6,000. So orangutans are in deep trouble. And what will we lose? Well, we will lose one of our closest living relatives in the animal kingdom, And we will lose a being that is benign, gentle, uh, intelligent, and that has been living the same lifestyle in the forests of Borneo and Sumatra, and actually Southern Asia as well, uh, during the Pleistocene, uh, for over a million years. Orangutans are often invoked as an insult for humans. Uh, For example, in Australia, Redheads are called rangers. Um, Also, we see much comparisons being made to Donald Trump because of his hair color. Do you think that this is fair to orangutans? (laughs) Uh, The first I knew about this was an Italian uh, legislator was called an orangutan, and 
I don't know why, because she had black hair. Well, I think it's inappropriate, and I think it's a little comedic, but is it fair to a Renaissance? Probably not, because a Renaissance are, uh, they do have a sense of humor, but they're very benign. And uh, <laughs> no, I don't think it's fair to a Renaissance. I think it makes them seem caricatures of themselves. Now, these politicians are not orangutans at all. Uh, if anything, they would resemble other other beings in the primate order. <laughs> Certainly not orangutans. Like, like what other primates, for example? Well, I don't want to insult any other primates. <laughs> <laughs> but um, certainly there are other primates that are much more violent, that do commit the equivalent of genocide, that are full of, on certain occasions, uh, trickery and deceit. And orangutans are not like that. They're not like that at all. I mean, you know, there are very rare instances of orangutans killing one another, but in the wild especially, I think I've only heard of one particular case, and probably it happened because the forests are disappearing and orangutans are being crowded together, and there's a problem with food scarcity. So, no, orangutans are very uh, benevolent and benign. And in reality, if you look at most animals, or virtually any animal, you'll find that that is true. I was just reading about wolves last night. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, Red Riding Hood and, and the wolf is, is actually not true to life at all because the most that a wolf will do if you encounter him or her in the forest, as you make a motion, and they will disappear in a flash. So, you know, I, I think it's insulting to animals <laughs> to compare people that you want to insult to any of them. Absolutely, and I think if orangutans are benevolent and gentle and intelligent, um, maybe we should consider them for elected office. Well, you know, I have to tell you something. There is a, an orangutan in Honolulu, who was homeless for a while in the sense that he didn't have a permanent home. Mm -hmm. He was housed temporarily in a small enclosure in the Honolulu Zoo. And I don't know why, but this became a, you know, a front-page issue in uh, Honolulu. And his name is Rusty. And, you know, the homeless orangutan, although he wasn't really homeless. And some people actually wrote in his name as a writing candidate for mayor of Honolulu because they said he was homeless just like many people in Honolulu were. <laughs> it has happened. I take it he didn't win, however, but hopefully he did find a home. Yeah, he did. Uh, OFI, Rotan Foundation International, which is our foundation, actually built him the largest enclosure probably of any orangutan in North America or even, even the world. And uh, he even has a fig tree. Even has a fig tree. Yeah, a huge one. I'm jealous. <laughs> it's a beautiful fig tree. <laughs> well, Dr. Galdikas, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Absolutely.
That's the show for today. We'll be back Monday to ask the editor-in-chief of the Brooklyn paper about their 19 stories to watch in 2019. And I don't want to give too much away, but one has to do with a certain subway tunnel and another with pickles. Plus, a little while ago, Vice asked extremely beautiful people how difficult their lives were. That article has resurfaced again, and we'll welcome woman 2 bks resident extremely beautiful person to tell his own tale of woe. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 